Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Last Saturday, I drove to the Cape to be with my friends whose 24-year-old Gracie had died in the middle of the night in a car wreck. When I arrived, I had to park up the street. So many people were there before me. As I let myself in and squeezed between a table and counters laden with food and drink, what I felt in the room was not only disembodied shock and deepest sadness, but great love. A force field of love was holding the family and holding all of us together. I thought of the circle of people just outside that room, starting with Kem, who had stayed behind to cover our dorm full of teenagers so I could go. Gracie's sister, Nicole, had just flown in from Chicago. A friend had arranged for the plane tickets and the rental car, packed their bags, gotten them to the airport, and commandeered her phone, answering the myriad calls and texts. Behind almost everyone in the room, was someone who had made it possible for us to drop everything and come. And there were the people whom we'd never met before that day who helped more than they'll ever know. The police who brought the terrible news to Gracie's parents' doors and waited with them until friends and family arrived. The old family friends who immediately stepped in to pay for the reception following yesterday's memorial service, feeding the hundreds of people who came to uphold them in their terrible grief. Once again, I was reminded of the healing power of beloved community. Today, as we gather in Thanksgiving, I want to reflect on our power to be there for each other to companion each other through the valley of the shadow and to end loneliness. It's been 18 years since Robert Putnam's best-selling book, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, sounded the alarm about societal isolation and alienation. Scientists agree that we are in the midst of an epidemic of loneliness. It can be literally deadly. Researchers found that the biggest contributor to suicides among veterans is not war-related trauma, but loneliness. The loss of the tight bonds formed through the shared mission and sacrifice and its stark contrast with our independent, isolated civilian society. Insufficient social connection is a bigger risk factor 
and a bigger predictor of premature death than obesity and is equivalent to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. But unlike smoking or obesity, loneliness hides in plain sight. And it's not just affecting people who are isolated, some people who are married, and those with relatively large networks of friends and families also feel empty and disconnected. Loneliness actually acts on the same part of the brain as physical pain. It makes sense. The same pain receptors that evolved to keep us from putting our hands into a fire once signaled us to rejoin the pack to help keep us safe from predators. Collaboration has ensured our survival. But the adaptive advantage that drove us to hunt and gather in tribes and that kept us from being lion food isn't as obvious to us anymore. Technically, we can survive solo as long as we have a microwave and a big enough supply of top ramen. So we have to understand that the pain of loneliness is real. It still has the power to kill us, just more slowly than predation or starvation. What to do about loneliness? Just for openers, I have five suggestions. One, we're already doing one of the very first things that the doctors ordered. Attend services at your house of worship. I am not making this up. A Duke, psych Duke University psychiatrist says there have been literally thousands of studies looking at whether religion is good for your health. And the findings have been mixed about whether aspects of religious devotion, such as prayer and reading the Bible, actually improve longevity. But the one aspect that is significantly more predictive of good health is religious service attendance. Just saying. Two, talk with strangers. Talk with strangers. Bus drivers, cashiers, people waiting in line with us, people waiting on us, say hello. Be that person. Three, one of the most important suggestions is to put down our phones and engage with those around us. The studies linking the use of technology to communicate and loneliness, linking those two things, those studies are devastating. Social media isn't inherently alienating, but there's a real risk of missing the opportunity to connect authentically. Researchers say FaceTime is great, but face-to-face -face time is the greatest. Four, be a good neighbor. Shovel the walk, shovel the snow off someone's walk, offer to feed their cats when they head out of town, drop off some cookies from that batch you just baked, talk to the kids playing outside. Social cohesion in a neighborhood actually lowers your risk of heart attack. And five, Find ways to engage with others. Find a common interest and run with it. Baking, 
board games, bowling, cooking, hiking, making art, singing, any activity you love, the trick is to create a space in which to engage meaningfully. And there has to be reciprocity. Everyone has to contribute. The loneliness fix is not so elusive. Sherry Turkle, author of Alone Together, Why We Ask More from Technology and Less from Each Other, says that it wasn't so long ago that we connected with each other more or less by default. We can figure it out again now that we know what's at stake. It's time to trace the human story of how we got here, she says. It's not so complicated. We can retrace our way and rediscover one another's company. Michael Massimino's friends call him Moss. When he was a senior at Columbia University, he saw the movie The Right Stuff. And he was utterly captivated by two things. First, the view of the Earth out the window of John Glenn's spaceship. And second, the friendship and loyalty among those seven astronauts. And so he applied to MIT for graduate school. And once he was at MIT, he applied to NASA. He applied to NASA four times, actually. And on the fourth time, they said yes. 13 years later, he found himself on the space shuttle Atlantis, heading out to do a spacewalk on the Hubble Space Telescope. Moss's job was to repair the power supply to an instrument that had failed. The problem was that the power supply was covered up with a panel affixed with 117 tiny screws. And just to be sure that panel would never come off in a launch, there was glue on the screw threads. It had taken Moss and his team five years to figure out how to get it off. They had designed over 100 new tools to be used in the procedure. And so he began. He leaves the airlock and makes his way along the edge of the shuttle. Looking over that edge is like looking over a cliff with 350 miles to fall before you get to Earth. He gets to the panel. His first job is to remove a handrail. A screw is stripped, a huge screw, and it won't budge. He hasn't even gotten to the part of the repair he and his team have been designing and rehearsing for five years, and he's already defeated. He looks at the crew inside the cabin. No one there can help him. He looks at the earth. No one here can help him. And he despairs. I felt this deep loneliness, he writes, and it wasn't just a Saturday afternoon with a book alone. I felt detached from the earth. I felt that I was by myself and that everything I knew and loved and that made me feel comfortable was far away. And then it started getting dark. In space, when you enter the darkness, it is not just darkness. It is the deepest dark I have ever experienced. It's the complete absence of light. It gets cold, and I could feel that coldness and I could just sense that darkness coming, and it just added 
to my loneliness. Over the next hour, Moss is troubleshooting. He feels so terrible, he can't even stand to look at his friends inside the cabin. But then, through the side of his helmet, he sees that his best friend, Drew Fustel, is trying to get his attention. Moss looks at him, and Drew is smiling and giving him the okay sign. Despairing, Moss thinks, is there another spacewalk going on out here? He can't talk to Drew because everything they say the control center in Houston will hear, but he's miming to him, are you nuts? And Drew mimes back, we are in this together, we're going to make it through, you're doing great, just hang in there. And if there was ever a time in my life that I needed a friend, says Moss, it was at that moment. I didn't believe him at all, but I thought, at least if I'm going down, I'm going down with my best pal. And then Houston has an idea and tells Moss just to yank the handrail off the shuttle. <laughs> Drew's voice comes through. It's going to take 60 pounds of force to get it to come loose. You got that in you, man. Go. And with a mighty yank, the handrail comes off. With his special tool, Moss removes 117 tiny glued-in screws. Out they come, and off comes the panel, and the power supply gets switched out, and the power comes back on, and everything is exactly as it should be. When he finally finishes, he's been out there for eight hours. But his commander says, hey, Moss, before you come in, why don't you just take a few minutes and enjoy the view. Moss tethers himself to the ship and lets go. He looks at the earth. He says, I can see the roundness of our home, and it's the most magnificent thing I've ever seen. It's like looking into heaven. He turns his head and sees the moon and the stars and the Milky Way, he sees the universe, and then he turns back, and he sees our planet, paradise. A few days later, he's back on Earth, and he's driving home from the airfield with his wife, Carol, and their kids. And Carol tells him that watching his spacewalk on the NASA channel, she could tell how sad he was that she could hear a sadness in his voice she'd never heard, and it had worried her. Moss says, I wish I would have known that when I was up there, because this loneliness that I felt, really, Carol was thinking about me the whole time. And we turned the corner to come back down our block, and I could see our neighbors outside. They had decorated my house, and there were American flags everywhere, and I got out of the car, and they were all hugging me. They were so happy to have me back, so happy about how great everything had turned out. And I realized my neighbors were also thinking about me the whole time. The next day, we got together with the engineers who had worked all those years with us, our trainers, the people who work in the control center, and they all started telling me how while I was up there in my little nightmare, all alone, they were all down here running around like crazy. 
And I realized that at the time when I felt so lonely, I felt detached from everyone else, literally like I was away from the planet, that really I was never alone that my family and my friends and the people I work with, the people I love, and the people that care about me, they were with me every step of the way. Beloved spiritual companions, we are in the midst of a deadly epidemic of loneliness. But we are possessed of the healing power to be there for each other and to end loneliness. Let's get to church, talk to strangers, put down our phones, be good neighbors, and find ways to engage with each other. Let us rediscover each other's company on this beautiful, round planet. The people we love, the people who love us, are with us every step of the way. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, Please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.